Well, you can turn with me this morning to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Um, let's read that psalm together. Uh, it is a uh, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Psalm 46.10. Most of us will have that translated, Be still and know that I am God. It's another favorite verse like Jeremiah 29, 11 that we looked at last week. Uh, it's another favorite verse that we like to cover ourselves in. T-shirts, coffee cups, Bible covers, bookmarks, hats, wall art, jewelry, key rings, and everywhere we can think to make something to put it, we will put that verse all over. Uh, it's a, a favorite for devotionally-minded music. Do you know that song that comes from Psalm 46, 10? Since I'm already singing this morning, I, I think I can sing a little bit of it for you. But be still and know that I am God. Be still. Have you heard that one? And know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in all the earth. And then it goes back. Be still. Right. Uh, and so it's very peaceful. And most versions of songs that you look up that are based on Psalm 46.10 are like that. Very peaceful. Very devotional. Very meditative. Uh, the question is, is Psalm 46 a call to meditation? And is it a call to reflection? And is it a call to quiet your heart and to know God for who He is? Or if understood properly within its context, is it communicating something else uh, through that text? And so we're going to take some time, a little more time than we normally would this morning, to look at biblical context for this verse Uh, And then we're going to look into the text and see what it says and then conclude then with what it is teaching us today. 
And so first off, just biblical context for this psalm. Uh, You know, the headings of these psalms are included in Scripture, and so they're not something that's added later. Uh, And so they're, they're there as a part of the text. And the very first thing, when you read this psalm, if you don't read the subtitle to the psalm and that header, you miss some really important information. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. I just am so blessed by how Scripture hangs together and how Scripture teaches Scripture. And here's a little note, a psalm of the sons of Korah, uh, set to Alamoth a song. Do you remember Korah by chance? Some of us may not have thought of Korah in a while. Um, He's not somebody you want to model your life after is the reason. So we don't think of Korah very often. You find the story of Korah around Numbers 12 through 16. You can read that later. We're not going to stop and read four chapters. But let me just sketch out for you through those chapters what happens. Israel has been delivered by God's mighty hand from slavery in Egypt. He has wrecked through the ten plagues the mightiest nation on the face of the earth. The army, which is probably all the strength they had left as a nation, pursues Israel out to the edge of the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. The nation walks through on dry land, and as the Egyptian army pursues them, God crushes them with the waters of the oceans. And Egypt now, for a time, is absolutely and utterly devastated every way that it could be devastated. And the nation of Israel moves quickly to the Mount uh, Sinai, where Moses meets with God and receives the law and instructions for how to travel with him. And what we often forget or look over is that within just a a couple of short weeks, two, three weeks from departing from Sinai, you come to Numbers chapter 12 and you are at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And the nation of six million people stands on the doorstep to the land that God has promised would be theirs, that he promised to Abraham. This will be the land for your descendants. And then we get that story we know, chapter 12, then into chapter 13. How many spies, kiddos, how many spies went into the land? Twelve. I heard somebody. I'm not sure that sounded like a kid's voice. (laughs) Somebody thinks they're real young in here. Um, Twelve spies go into the land, and they come back out of the land, and what do they say? Fee, fi, fo, fum. That's, That's a different story. But they say there's giants in the land, don't they? Nephilim, right? Which were, uh, that's like saying... um, referencing mythological giants, right? The Nephilim were gone with the flood, but there's Nephilim in the land. It's like they're that huge. And that's the report of 10 of them. And then you get Joshua and Caleb who say, God is with us. 
and if God is with us, we'll be fine. But the people of the nation don't agree. And so at the, in chapter 14, the people have no faith in God. It has not been that long since God manifested and demonstrated His power mightily to save these people. They've already had moments in the wilderness on the way to Kadesh Barnea where God has again provided for their needs. And yet faced with danger, isn't this the temptation of the human heart? Faced with danger, difficulty, possible loss of life? Oh no. And it's instructive to watch what they do because it's kind of how this works its way out. If you don't interrupt this cycle, you get down to a point of absolute rebellion against God. They grumble and complain. They whine. Would that we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. They grumble. And then they question God. Next, is God bringing us here into the land so that he can destroy us? I mean, do you really think? You know, isn't it odd that God has done so much to deliver you? That would be the height of what? Practical joking, you know, to bring a nation out like that just to bring them over here to destroy them. Right? You have to, you, oh, they're very skeptical all of a sudden about God and his motives. And then they reject God. We would be better off in Egypt, not here. And then there's just all-out rebellion. They say by the end of it, let us choose a leader and let's go back. I mean, wow. And how does God respond? Well, ultimately, by the time you get to the, uh, towards the end of chapter 14 and there in Numbers, He judges, but He's merciful. And in that, even as we see how often we're tempted to respond to difficulties and dangers, we see God be who He is. He judges, but He's gracious and He's merciful. He judges and says, no one who has seen His glory, no one who's seen His signs, no one who has seen His miracles and then rejected Him is going to see the land of promise. And that's a note that rings all the way through the New Testament. Who is it that is in the most dangerous place and is hardest to come to repentance, according to the New Testament? Somebody that has seen and understood, heard, and has firsthand knowledge about the grace of God and His powerful deliverance for us in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to, who took the wrath of God for our sins so that we wouldn't have to, who died a death in the body and then was resurrected on a third day. That if you know that gospel and that all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ, know that he's God and that he's Savior and believe in him and entrust your life to him. You can't work for salvation. It's a free gift to you. That's all it is. That if you know those things and you walk away from God, you are in the most dangerous of places 
your heart, you have to harden your heart so hard to do that, that you are most unlikely to repent ever. And so he says, if you've seen my glory, my signs, my miracles, and you rejected them, you will not enter the land. Everybody here, except for those two, Joshua and Caleb, will have their bodies laid low in the wilderness. And since you were in the land for 40 days, you're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years, a year for every day. And so the nation ends up turning away at Kadesh Barnea back to the wilderness. But before they go, God doesn't just judge. He's merciful to them. He says in the midst of this judgment, this sure judgment, God provides grace and mercy. It's an odd thing. It's almost like chapter 15 in Numbers interrupts the narrative. You have this story of entering the land and the spies and the spies returning and the rejection of the nation. And then chapter 15 is about sacrifices. Why? It's one of those things that when we're walking through Bible study methods, you have to ask the question, why is that there? Because in chapter 16, you go back to the narrative of what's going on in the camp. So why do we stop and take a whole chapter about the sacrifices that can be done? Because God's reminding them in the midst of this rebellion and His judgment of that rebellion, here's the path to mercy and grace. Here's my mercy and grace to you. Here's how you can atone for sin and dwell near your God, even while you're in the wilderness. And then you come back to chapter 16. Do you think God describing and proclaiming and making known his mercy and his grace is sufficient in and of itself to end rebellion in human hearts? It's not. We never, it, God has always made known His goodness and His grace. And by itself, the knowledge of that has never ended human rebellion. And you go into chapter 16, and it doesn't bring an end to the rebellion here. And you find out that Korah is the ringleader. And so we have the sons of Korah in Psalm 46. Well, here's Korah, their ancestor, with Dathan and Abiram and a feller named On with 250 chiefs or elders of the nation, with a number of the people that gather against Moses and against Aaron. And by the end of that chapter, God says, y'all need to step back from them. Separate yourselves. And there's a big area that clears out around Korah and Dathan and Abiram and On and their family and their tents and their possessions. And all of a sudden, boom! You would imagine, if you you know the story and you would imagine, bam! And you'd hear a crack like a thunderclap and everyone would look to see what it was. And about that time, the ground goes, boom, underneath them. And all of those, Dathan and Abiram and On and Korah and their households are swallowed up and the earth snaps shut over them. And then fire comes out from the presence of the Lord 
and consumes the 250 chiefs or elders of the nation that had stood with them. And God ends the rebellion right there and right then. That's Korah. We don't want to be like Korah, so we don't talk about Korah a whole lot. But we find out later that not everybody in Korah's household stood with Korah. Numbers 26 verse 11 says, The sons of Korah did not die there with him. There were some of his sons, grandsons and progeny, that did not stand with him and did not die. But they learned something that day. And this is really the point of our message today. It's the point of this psalm, I think, uh, is this, is that no matter how daunting or dangerous circumstances appear to be, no matter how daunting or how dangerous or how deadly circumstances appear to be, our refuge is found in God's purpose to be glorified in heaven and earth. That's what they learned. No matter how bad it looks, our refuge, our stronghold, our safe place is found in God's purpose to be glorified in heaven and in earth. And you can find it through all the Psalms that the sons of Korah are noted to have written. You can write these down. You can look them up later and read them. Uh, Psalms 42 Uh, 43 is not officially listed, but 43 appears to be a continuation of 42. Uh, So 42, maybe 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, and 49. So 42 to 49 with 43 probably included under 42. And then 84 and 85 and 87 and 88. Those are the 11 or so. Psalms ascribed to the sons of Korah. And you find uh, this loyalty and this trust in God through those Psalms. Uh, Some of the things that are near and dear to us from the Psalms come from these Psalms of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, Psalm 42, verse 1. That's not rejection and rebellion and lack of trust and grumbling and complaining against God. And in that psalm, you get a sense of danger and difficulty and trials, but they begin as the deer pants for water brook, so my soul pants for you. Later in that Psalm 42, 11, why are you in despair, O my soul? They're feeling, they're feeling the despair. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God. Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 47, 2, for the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. 48.1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. If you go to 84.1 and 2, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. 
Every one of those Psalms have in it oppression, difficulty, trials, danger. Every one of those Psalms begin or turn in the middle or end with my hope is in the Lord. My trust is in him. Psalm 44 is a great example, really, of their theology altogether. Uh, If we walk through that, uh, there's a a verse there I want you to see uh, before we turn back to Psalm 46. Real briefly, he says in in, uh, verses 1 through 3 and 44, they're recalling God's deliverance from Egypt, his fighting for them to establish them in the land. Then verses 4 through 8, there's their confidence and their trust in God as king. And then in 9 through 16, you get this stretch and you're like, what just happened? God is the one who's powerfully worked for us. He established us in the land. Our faith and trust are in him. We have not been moved from that. And then you have this, you have rejected us, it would seem, and brought us to dishonor. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. We're losing the battles. You give us a sheep to be eaten. You've scattered us among the nations. You make us a reproach to our neighbors. You make us a byword among the nations and a laughingstock among the peoples. And they would say in verse 17, this has all come upon us. You would assume that the nation was being judged. But they say, but we have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our hearts, verse 18, has not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. It's God's not judging, they're saying, because we haven't gone astray. Verse 22, but for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now you're in the most difficult of places in life. Have you ever been there? Lord, as far as I know, I'm being faithful. As far as I know, I'm not rebellious. As far as I know, I'm doing what I know from Scripture to do. As far as I know, God. And yet it seems as if your hand is heavy upon my life. Isn't that the most confusing of moments? You start to doubt. You start to wonder. Surely I've sinned somewhere. Surely this is God's discipline on me. I can't think of anything else. And they make this radical statement here. It's a radical statement in the Old Testament. We are killed all day long and considered sheep to be slaughtered. That's not the radical part. That's the reality. The radical part is for your sake. We don't know how, why this is happening. But what? We trust you. We know somehow you're still working for good. And so is it any wonder that Paul quotes this, this text in Romans 8? Romans 8, verse 
Let's see, verse 16 in that chapter, verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Chapter 8 is about sanctification, our growth, our surety, our confidence in Christ because of the work of the Spirit in us. But it's a, it's a chapter about that in the midst of suffering. Although we're suffering, we trust And the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's yet to be revealed to us. And then you move down from there uh, to 28, and we get that that we looked at briefly last week in connection with Jeremiah 29, 11. We know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Not necessarily good right now or tomorrow, but the ultimate good that we will stand one day in His presence. That God, the ultimate good, that in the midst of my suffering, God is making Himself known as good and gracious. How do we know that? Because those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified or declared righteous. And those he justified, he glorified. Those that he has called and declared righteous, it's so certain that they're going to come to perfection. That Paul speaks of it as already glorified. It's past tense there. You get that golden chain. And so what shall we say then, he says, if God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against us? Nobody. God is the one who justifies. Only he can condemn and he has removed condemnation from us. Remember how chapter 8 begins? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? And just for, just as it is written. And Paul is basing his thinking here in Romans 8 on Psalm 44, 22. For just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We could even be losing our lives for the sake of righteousness, for Christ's namesake, for God's namesake, and not lose our faith and our trust in him, that he is a good and gracious God. For your sake, he says. So in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Jesus who has conquered sin and death, we're already victorious there. So we can lose this life and we're still victors in him. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, he goes back to the worst of it, not even death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us 
from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isn't that good? What they have figured out is that no matter how daunting, how dangerous or how deadly things look, our refuge is found in God's purpose to glorify himself on heaven and earth. And therefore their trust is in him and he is their refuge and he is their strength. And so when you open up Psalm 46, that's what you immediately hear from them. The sons of Korah, verse one, God is our refuge and our strength. Not when things are great, but a very present help in trouble, they say. Therefore, we will not fear. And then they get a bit hyperbolic. Though the earth should change, but is there something in their background, in their history where the earth did change? Yeah, there is. Though the earth should change and mountains slip into the heart of the sea, we know that can happen if God so deems for that to happen. Though its waters roar and foam and though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, and there you get a little indication there's something wrong in the face of the earth. Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, that there is this swelling pride in the earth. There's this problem there. And then they say, Selah. You know what that Selah means there? Take a moment. Be quiet. Think. In the midst of trouble, no matter how deadly or dangerous things look, our refuge is found in the purpose of God to glorify himself on heaven and earth. He's our refuge and our strength. No matter what is going on in the face of the earth, he's our refuge. He's our strength. So then they turn, verse 4, to describing uh, the uh, Lord as their sole source of everything. Uh, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns, he says. And so God, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This is Uh, A figure of speech right here. There's not literally a river in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up on a hill. There's a brook right next to Jerusalem. If you've ever been there, you go across the Kidron Valley and there's the Kidron Brook. Uh, It wouldn't even really qualify as a creek around here. I mean, it's it's tiny, right? And so uh, there's not a river there in Jerusalem. He's, He's using a figure of speech. And this is a, a manner of speaking throughout uh, Scripture of the blessing that God provides His people. Psalm 36, 7, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. That's the idea there. The abundance of blessedness that comes from the Lord to his people. All right. Uh, 
It's the same kind of an idea in John 7, 38, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And that's something that is a benefit to you, but it's also a blessing to others, that now you become a source of the river of God's blessedness, not just in your life, but to others. As you now know the God of heaven and his grace and his mercy, and you can share that with others. There's now a river of the blessedness of God that flows forth from his people. It's most clearly pictured in Revelation 22, the end of scripture. You have a new heaven, a new earth. You have the city of God on the face of the earth, a new Jerusalem. It says there, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding his fruit every month. There will no longer be any curse in the world. That in the new city of God, where the throne of God is, that it's depicted as if there was a river coming forth from the throne. And on either side of that's the tree of life. Not that the tree of life is necessary to maintain eternal life, but it is a, as often there is in Scripture, a physical symbol, manifestation, concrete, uh, something that you can see that's tangible, that speaks to eternal life. And so the river, the blessedness of God, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In the midst of our trouble, as the mountains quake and swell with pride, God is in the midst of her, verse 5. She will not be moved by all that is going on. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. This is like Psalm 2. Why are the nations, in Psalm 2 it says, in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. What's that vain thing? Uh, That the kings of the earth take their stand against God and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and His anointed. There's been grumbling. There's been questioning of God. There's been rejection of God. And now there's outright rebellion against God. And so now we're devising a plan against God and His anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart. The rule of God is not seen in their life to be a river of blessedness, but to be shackles that bind. Is that a familiar refrain? Christianity, belief in God, and Jesus Christ as Messiah, it's not freedom, it's bondage. It's what you'll hear a lot in our day. That's what people have always said about it. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords. And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And that's what you get right here. Verse 6, the nations made an uproar. He raised his voice. The earth melted The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. It was dangerous out there. Now God is judging, and it's really dangerous out there. 
but we trust the Lord and he is our refuge. Come behold the works of the Lord. What do you think those are? In the history of this nation, in the history of the sons of Korah, that's God devastating nations that exalt themselves against God. That's God devastating people that reject him. Come see the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. Now, he hasn't done this yet to the fullest extent, but it's coming and he can and he will. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. And now the sons of Korah don't speak, but now God speaks, verse 10. So with all of that in mind, does this sound like put on your piano music and go meditate? No. This is God will judge wickedness and rebellion. And when he does, it's going to be awful and terrifying, just like on the day that the earth split open and swallowed folks and then shut up on them. Just like the day that he devastated a nation to bring his people out or, or destroyed their armies, this God will end rejection against him. And now God speaks and you've, this is one of those places that if you're reading different versions, NIV, NAS, uh, Holman, Christian, um, King James, right? That you get, a, you get a good sense there's something else. There's something going on here because you'll find this translated, uh, be still. You'll find it translated, stop your fighting. You'll find it translated, that's home and Christian. You'll find it translated, as you heard it this morning in the New American Standard, cease striving. God is now speaking, and he's speaking to the rebellious, and he's speaking to those rejecting him. Uh, this is very much like that story of Jesus asleep in the boat. You remember that one, kiddos? Right? The disciples are out on the boat on the Galilee and a storm comes up and it's dangerous and they're in fear for their life. And what's Jesus doing? Sleeping, right? When the nations roar, Psalm 2, is God worried? No, he's not concerned. And Jesus, they, they wake him up. We're about to die. Help. And he stands up and he calmly, it appears, looks around And what does he say? Stop it. Be still. And what happens? (laughs) And they look at him and go, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They are in awe of his mighty power. And that's what's happening here. God says to the rejecting and the rebellious, stop it. Cease fighting, cease striving, and know that I am God. You can reject me and you can rebel, but there's going to be a reckoning. And you're going to know someday that I am who I say I am. And so it's spoken to the rebellious 
but it's for God's people to hear too. Just like the disciples hear Jesus say, be still and that everything ceases, that to know that God is the one who will end wars, break bows, cut spears, burn chariots, take swords and make them plowshares. And there will be an everlasting peace across the face of the earth. Stop it, he says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. This, this is what is going to happen. And so no matter how daunting, no matter how dangerous, no matter how deadly circumstances appear to be, the sons of Korah know our refuge is found in God's purpose to glorify himself in heaven and earth. That's where our refuge is. When we are praising him, when we are exalting him, worshiping him, honoring him, when we're submitted to him, when we're serving him, when we revere him and awe him, and even if we are for his sake being killed all day long and considered to be a sheep to be slaughtered, we say together with the sons of Korah, God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in times of trouble. The Lord who commands the heavenly hosts is with us. Do you see that? Verse 7, verse 11. The God of Jacob who is with him. He's with us. He is our stronghold. So no matter how bad life gets, no matter how deadly it looks, our refuge is found in the God of heaven. He's our refuge. He's our stronghold. And one day, he'll say, stop it. And he'll gather his people together and we'll be with him forever and ever. That's our hope, no matter what's going on around us. So, Father, we thank you for your word. God, for its goodness. God, for it uh, teaching itself from itself, God. For how you have made it so clearly known, Lord. Thank you for these psalms from the sons of Korah who saw rejection and rebellion. They saw the end that rejection and rebellion against the God of heaven brings someone to. And they learned no matter what, no matter what, blessedness is found from God and in the God who will cause all this chaos one day to cease. And until then, no matter how dangerous it is to us, we will keep the faith. And we will praise the God of heaven. Thank you, O Lord, for that. Strengthen our faith today, O God, as we worship you, as we continue to fellowship you with, uh, together, and as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.